as many of you know, we are teaching through the Gospel of John with this theme of life in his name. And John gives us this purpose statement in uh, his Gospel in chapter 20 where he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, I say this every time I teach, but I just think it is so important for us to engage again and again with John's purpose statement because it really is an invitation. It's an invitation to each of us weekly or any time we pick up this gospel and read it to really check our spiritual pulse, asking ourselves, do I have life in the name of Jesus? Do I, am I experiencing a fullness of life that I would recommend to others that I can say, man, follow me as I follow Jesus in the way of Jesus? And so each time we come together and we study Scripture and we look at our lives in light of Scripture, we're being invited to ask these deep, heart-searching, life-searching questions. Is the life of Jesus being put on display in my life? Am I experiencing life in his name? Now, in our section that we've come to this morning, there are many, many wonderful teachings and topics found here, and I hope that you have or will take time to read them and contemplate their meaning. But this morning, I want to focus our time looking just simply at three things, and that is the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, and lastly, the specific work of the Spirit to lead us into the truth. So last week, we looked at the first 14 verses of our chapter, and we emphasized how all that Jesus was saying was specifically to comfort, to encourage, and to assure disciples, his disciples, at the news of his leaving his leaving to go the way of the cross, his leaving to finish his course and return to the Father. And he wanted to assure them that they really did know God, that there was a security in all that Jesus had um, taught them and led them into. Listen, you know God and you know the Father, Jesus says, for you have been with me. You have seen the Father, you know the Father because you have been with me. And I mentioned last week that to the worried and fearful disciples, Jesus' statement is one of comfort and assurance, but even more than that, it is a statement of divine revelation. Because when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, he is actually revealing to us the character and nature of our God. That God, our God, the one and true God, is the foot-washing, crucified God. That that's what it means that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Now, Jesus continues these words of comfort to his disciples in light of his going away to the Father. And Jesus tells them, listen, I'm not leaving you. I'm not abandoning you. I'm finishing my course, my mission that I was sent on. And in completing this task, this mission, there is going to be even greater fullness of joy and revelation than you have ever known. 
the Father and I are going to dwell among you. We're going to make our home in you, and we will be with you always. Now, the immediate fulfillment will be through the sending of God's Holy Spirit. Remember, at the end of John's gospel, John does not have a recording of the day of Pentecost, but what John has is that the resurrected Jesus appears in the upper room to his disciples. It's there on the first day of the week. It says that the doors are locked, and Jesus appears in the midst of them. He speaks his peace to them. He shows them the signs of his suffering. And it says that he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And again, he speaks his peace. And then as we go on, he commissions the disciples. He sends them out. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. It is through the giving of God's Holy Spirit that this ancient promise given to Israel is fulfilled. I will dwell among them and be their God. And here in chapter 14, uh, this passage is really bringing us full circle to where we begin in John chapter 1. Remember, there in John chapter 1, we talked about how Jesus, who is the Son at the right hand of the Father and is God himself, has been sent into the world on really a rescue mission to bring humanity back into the love of God. And we talked about how the language that John uses to describe the the Son as the Word of God and His relationship to the Father is this word that's used of perichoesis, which um, I'm, I think I'm messing it up right now, perichoesis, but the idea is of choreography and that between Father, Son, and Spirit, what we call the Trinity, there is this divine dance of deference and love. There is this just unending joy love and life in the community of God. And that the Son is sent to bring us into that life and that love that are in God. And so we see now as Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit, it's the completion of this task, of this mission to bring God to us, but also to bring us into the life and the love of God. It is through the atoning work of Jesus' death and his resurrection, his ascension back to the Father, that we are brought into the life that is in God. And so I think what we see first and foremost from Jesus' teaching here is that the Holy Spirit is all about presence. Now, because of the influence of the charismatic movement, Pentecostalism, Many times when we think about the person and work of the Spirit, we think about the charismatic gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, right? So we think about activities, speaking in tongues or prophecies and things like that, things that are very noticeable. But first and foremost, the Spirit of God is all about the presence of God, the presence of God in the life of the disciple. Three passages that Jesus, or three verses within our text this morning, Jesus says of the Spirit, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus ties this idea of knowing the Spirit, the Spirit living within disciples, and Jesus is coming to disciples together. This is one and the same. 
Jesus goes on, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and will show or manifest myself to them. So the giving of the Spirit is tied to the love of the Father and the Son and deeper, fuller revelation of God's love, all through the giving of the Spirit. And finally, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. This is an incredible truth that every follower of Jesus needs to take to heart, that through the giving of the Holy Spirit, we have the very presence of God with us everywhere we go. God is not far off, removed, seated in the heavens, immune to what's going on in your life, disconnected from the events of the world. God is not tied to the location of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, or Saddleback Church, or Rock Harbor, or at any other you know, Christian gathering. The Spirit of God, according to the promises of the Old Testament, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and I will dwell in the midst of them, is fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God with us everywhere we go. We are never alone. I was thinking about this hymn this week, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and in that hymn, we sing this line, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Just one observation of this application. I think many times during the holidays, it brings up not so much what we have, but for many of us, what we've lost or a recognition of what we don't have. I was talking to someone the other week and they were just telling me, my husband's passed away, all my family lives out of state, the holidays remind me that I'm alone. And I, under, I, I understand that, I hear that, I sympathize with that. And yet, at the same time, here's this incredible gift and promise from Jesus. And for those who are his, we are never alone. The Spirit of God is with us in times of deep trial and discouragement, in the dark places that we go in our life. God is with us. Remember what Jesus says to disciples. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, it's through the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit of God, that this promise of Jesus is true. He's with us. Father, Son, and Spirit, everywhere we go. Even the peace that Jesus speaks of in the latter verses of this chapter, his peace, a peace that the world cannot know because they don't know him, it is due to the abiding presence of God with his people through the Holy Spirit. So I think that's the first kind of building block that we need to just kind of lay down this morning. This truth of the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what's emphasized in this chapter is the person of the Holy Spirit. Now in this gospel, both John and Jesus have alluded many times 
to both the person and work of the Holy Spirit. We see it there in John chapter 1 at the baptism of Jesus. We see it again in John chapter 3, and it just continues and continues, right? Allusions to the coming of the Spirit, the work that the Spirit will do. Jesus' offering of living water that will bubble up in an individual, and John says he's speaking of the Spirit who at that time had not yet been given. Here in chapters 14 through 16, Jesus focuses specifically, though, on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, who is in person the truth, is, it's been recorded in John 14, 6, and the disciples' special friend. Later in John 15, Jesus will say to the disciples, I no longer call you servants because servants don't know what the master is doing. I call you friends. So Jesus, who is the truth and is the friend now gives his disciples a promise that in his coming absence, the spirit of truth will constantly be with them, encouraging them with their true friend, Jesus. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit here the helper. And it's this Greek word, the paraclete. It's one who's called alongside to help. But the meaning of this word is actually fuller than all of that. It carries meaning of someone who exhorts, right? Someone who encourages you to do the right thing at the right time. It's someone who brings comfort, someone who brings encouragement. It can also be translated counselor, helper, and advocate. And don't think of advocate as like a court advocate. There's nothing in this text that would imply that this is a courtroom type of relationship. Think of it like this. He's in your corner. He is for you, for your good, for your blessing, for your fullness, for your benefit. And Jesus says specifically that he is giving them another helper, I think, once again, this helps us understand who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. It implies strongly that Jesus is the first helper. So in all the ways that the disciples have experienced the comfort, the encouragement, the exhortation, the advocacy of Jesus, the Spirit will continue that in their lives. And the Spirit will do that work in all subsequent disciples, all those who will believe through their witness. So the Holy Spirit will fulfill a parallel role to the role of Jesus. One of my favorite commentators on the Gospel of John is a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner. And he translates the word helper as the true friend. And when I first read that years ago, I, I was really taken aback by it. Like, wow, the true friend. What? That's an interesting you know, interpretation of what this means. But the more I read and thought about it, you know, you'd think about, like, if we were to be asked the name we would give to the person who stepped in for us in our darkest moment and difficulty, who was constantly there for us, bringing encouragement and comfort to our lives, the one who counseled us to do what is right, what is good and true towards others, you would most likely choose something along the lines of my truest friend. 
someone who is just in your corner, advocating for your best. This is who the Spirit is. This is what the Spirit does. And this is an incredible definition of what a true friend does. The one who encourages you, speaks the truth to you, exhorts you, excuse me, exhorts you to do what is right and good. The one who comforts you, the one who is your advocate. This is the helper that Jesus and the Father send to be with us. God's own very presence to help, to comfort, to encourage us. A friend of mine named Kellen Criswold, uh, many of you guys will remember Kellen. He was on staff here for many years. Uh, he describes a true friend this way, and I, I've just taken this to heart. He says, a true friend knows me best, loves me most, and tells me the hard truth I need to hear. I can't think of a better description of a friend, but also a better description of really what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, who He is to us. The one who knows us thoroughly, loves us completely, and is in our corner for our good, telling us those difficult things that we need to hear for our flourishing, for our blessing. Now, we could focus, as I said, on many things and what the Spirit does, the peace that the Spirit gives. We could do a whole teaching on this statement by Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments. But as I said this morning, I just wanna thread this needle of what we've been talking about for the last few weeks, which is following in the way of Jesus and how the Spirit will actually lead us into the truth. So Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the advocate and spirit of truth who will help disciples and be with them forever. And I think it's good just to stop for a moment and talk about truth according to John's gospel. As we read John's gospel and the truth is spoken of again and again, knowing the truth, the truth setting us free, I think we can make a mistake of thinking of truth in philosophical terms or in a philosophical sense, we think of logic and reason as opposed to folly and ignorance. That this is the truth or the kind of truth Jesus and John's gospel are talking about. And if that's our perspective, though, we'll probably be pretty bothered and confused when Jesus stands before Pilate, the Roman governor. Remember that story? We're going to read it in the, you know, a couple months here, but Jesus tells Pilate, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate retorts, what is truth? Just this cynicism is just oozing out of him, right? And I think at this moment, if this we're respecting a philosophical argument, we see this as a failure on Jesus' part. Why isn't he answering Pilate? Why isn't he correcting Pilate and putting him in his place? And I believe the answer is because Jesus is not talking about truth as an ideal, a philosophy, or principle to be debated with Pilate. Jesus is the truth, and he's staring Pilate right in the face. 
And the truth is this, is that Jesus is the incarnation of the truth. What is that? That Jesus will show his loving obedience to the Father. Jesus will fulfill for all humanity the great commandment to love God supremely, to love his neighbor as himself by going the way of the cross, by submitting to the will of the Father. This is the truth. And John is inviting us to see the world through this truth, not a philosophy, not an ideal, not through logic and reason per se, but through the truth that is Jesus, through the way of Jesus. Craig Koyster, in his book, The Word of Life, he had great insight to the gospel of John's definition of truth. He says, truth in John's gospel is what characterizes God. To know the truth is to know the God who is true. God sent Jesus to bear witness to the truth, and Jesus does this by words and actions that make God's grace and truth known. Jesus finally embodies God's truth, for he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Therefore, to know the truth is to know the God revealed in Jesus. As we talked about last week, that is very specific, right? It is the foot-washing, crucified God. It is not a God according to my own definition or a truth according to my own definition, but it's a specific way of Jesus that defines God for us and then therefore defines the truth for us. This means the focus of the Spirit's work will be that he will lead us into the way of Jesus who is the truth. He will lead us into loving obedience by following the way of Jesus. Now, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is because I think if we feel like we are commissioned to go and give the truth to people, what we will often do is we will beat people over the head with it, right? It's like, remember Highlander, you know, like only, only one, there can only be one, I can't even actually remember this, the statement. But like this idea is like, you know, we're both going to this ring and only one person's coming out alive. Oftentimes, that's the way Christians, we think that we're called to engage with the truth. But rather, we're called to engage with the truth that is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And the Spirit will enable believers to discern what this truth means for us in our daily lives as we follow in Jesus' way. As I mentioned a moment ago, sometimes we think of truth as very black and white, truth versus lies. It's something we can just plug in and play, something that we actually carry around in our pockets, a one-size-fits-all kind of truth. But what is being talked about here is much more nuanced. How the Spirit might lead me into the way of Jesus, who is the truth, will be as varied as the number of circumstances and relationships of my life. This means that as we engage in those circumstances and relationships, 
our continual prayer will be, Spirit, lead me into the way and the truth and the life that are in Jesus. So if in a situation that calls for boldness, that I will be bold. If in a situation that calls for humility, I will be humble. If in a situation that calls me to forgive, that I will forgive. If it's sacrifice, then I will do it sacrificially. If silence, then an eager listening. And as as we do this, as we listen to the Spirit, as we are sensitive to the different ways that the Spirit might lead us into the way and the truth that is in Jesus, we train ourselves to both listen and obey the voice and prompting of the Spirit. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I have gone into a meeting with other pastors or leaders, or I've had um, a counseling appointment. Counseling appointment. It's like the seventh time I'm meeting with this person, and I'm just thinking, this is it. I'm done. I've had it up to here. I'm just going to tell this person what they need to hear. You're a fool. I'm never meeting with you again. You made your bed. You're lying. You know what I mean? Like, you just go in. You've got your, like, I'm going to tell them the hard truth they need to hear, right? They've been getting a lot of grace. Now they're going to hear the hard truth. And I've walked into those situations and the Spirit of God has led me in the opposite direction. And I have been so incredibly thankful because the Spirit of God has also been working in them. And it's just been this amazing thing to just watch the Spirit lead in just these varied circumstances and relationships in ways that I would have never imagined. Well, that went in an opposite direction of what I thought was gonna happen. And I really believe that this is just a word for us, especially as we are approaching the holidays. We're going to engage in relationships that, gosh, have so much history and baggage. And there'll be this temptation to write our, you know, brother or sister or aunt or uncle or cousin or child off. Man, I've tried to get through so many times. And you just think that this is it. I'm done, right? And like, this is like this impenetrable pass. And I wonder how the Spirit of God might want to lead you into the way of Jesus if you would simply open up your ears to hear. If you would simply open up your hand to release what you think is right, what this person needs to hear and needs to receive from you. If you were to simply say, Spirit of God, would you lead me in the way and the truth that is in Jesus? Would you lead me in that foot-washing, cruciform way and surprise me with what you might do? See, this is the work that the Spirit does, the helper comforter, advocate, constantly pointing to Jesus, revealing Jesus, discerning Jesus, compelling us to the life in Jesus. See, this is so encouraging to know that the Spirit is within me, that the Spirit is within you. It's not up to us to just work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who also works in us both to will and to do 
of his good pleasure. God is at work in us. God's very life and presence at work in us, at our side, cheering us on, seeking our best and our transformation to the image of Jesus. We are not alone to discern and act out the way and truth and life of Jesus. But we are helped, comforted, exhorted, encouraged by the Spirit of God in the various circumstances and relationships that we have. Now, I often think of when my kids are acting out. As I was studying this week, I was thinking about the work that the advocate would do, right? My wife and I, we are our children's helpers. We are their advocates to encourage them to act and speak in a way that represents who they really are. And we often use this language when we are correcting them. You are misrepresenting yourself. This is not who you are. And I believe this is actually the work that the Spirit does. He reminds us that we are children of God. He reminds us of this true identity that we have in Jesus. And because of that true identity in Christ, he redirects us then into the way of Jesus, into the truth that is in Jesus, and to the life that is in Jesus' name. Just like in my parenting with grace that we try to do this redirection of our children. Hey, this is not who you are. This is who you are. And we point them in this direction of goodness, of something that is life-giving to them and life-giving to our family and to those around us. In a sense, this is the work that the Spirit will do, reminding us, advocating for us, helping us all toward the way of Jesus. And I think we will find that as we open ourselves up, as I said a moment ago, we will be surprised at the direction that the Spirit of God will take us in. I'm thinking of a story right now that I don't know if I should share it or not, but I'm going to anyway, because you know, what the heck. Um, years ago, I know a pastor who years ago, he was invited to go on a trip to Israel with a group of people who identified as LGBTQ, you know, um, living in that lifestyle, engaging in that lifestyle. And he was invited to go on the trip. And they're, you know, they are um, simultaneously wanting to follow the Bible and these teachings, so they're affirming, right, is what we would call that. And he was invited to go on this trip. And so many people around him were like, you absolutely cannot go on this trip. And, you know, so as he's wrestling with this, man, should I go on this trip? Shouldn't I go on this trip? What should I do? What should I do? He felt that the Spirit of God told him, I want you to go on this trip because I want to be on that bus with those people. I want to impart my love, my grace, my presence, my life to those people. And I want you to go in my name. I say all that because the Spirit of God often will take us in places, to people, in direction that we least expect. Remember in John chapter 3, though, 
Jesus says to Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and so is everyone who is led by the Spirit of God. And as I said a moment ago, I wonder what would happen if we stepped into that place. And said, Spirit of God, I want to release to you these things I've been holding on to. Now, this is a really vulnerable, scary place to be in because in these situations, we're not in the driver's seat. In these situations, we don't know what the outcome will be. But what we are doing is we are entrusting ourselves to be led by the Spirit of God into the way of Christ. Now, I know that understanding or grasping this is not the same as living and practicing it. And to say Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and to say that the Spirit leads us in, the way that, in that way sounds great. But what about our actual lives, right? It's much more complex than that, isn't it? I wonder how many of us actually doubt God's presence in us and don't necessarily sense any compelling or urging of the Spirit into the way of Jesus in the various circumstances and relationships of our lives. In fact, we feel very alone and powerless to bring about any change or transformation. We just keep you know, having that fallout in that relationship with our brother or with our sister or with our child. We see them at the holidays. We, you know, we kind of coach ourselves into it. Okay, it's going to go different this time. It's going to go better this time. And then it just goes the same. It's like, I cannot get through. I cannot take any ground. And you feel powerless and you feel on your own. Nothing's ever going to change. Here is the truth, though. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life in this world, that he himself is the one true and only revelation of God come to give himself to bring us into life that is in God, then you have the Spirit of God in you, and God is at work in you. And I believe that many times in our lives we do not sense God's presence because we are focused on the presence of so many other things. We're busy, we're burdened, our lives are noisy and distracted. But the truth is that God is at work every moment and he is at work in you. So I want you to do something with me. Can you just repeat this after me? God is at work in me. Excellent. God is at work in you. I think one of the problems in our fast-paced culture is that we rarely take time to stop, notice, and attend to the places that God is at work in us. 
you might have a verse. Oh, I underlined it. Okay, you know, a little caffeine, spiritual caffeine for the day, right? Listen to K-Wave on the way into work and heard a word and like, okay. But there's not this attending to that thing. There's not this stopping and giving attention to it. And so it can seem that life is just kind of happening to you. But the truth is that God is at work in you, but we rarely make time to stop and notice these places where God is at work in us or even the places where God needs to continue that work in us. Think of the example of the burning bush. Remember, it's after 40 years Moses has fled from Egypt and he's been shepherding the flock of Jethro on the backside of the mountain of God. After 40 years, Moses' life has radically slowed down. And as he's shepherding one day, it says that he notices that there is a bush that is burning. And then it says that Moses says, I will turn aside now and see why the bush burns. And in that moment, it says, and God says, when he saw Moses turn aside, then the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush. Moses, Moses. See, God is speaking. God is at work constantly there is this responsibility in us, though, to slow, to pay attention, and to give our attention to the bush that is burning. And so I actually would love to do just a little practice or exercise this morning with each of us. Just a way that we can discern the ways that God is at work in us. And then we can invite the Spirit to give special attention to those ways that God is already working or even attention to those areas of our life where we sense deep brokenness, where there's still fear or anger or constant temptation, that we would bring that before the Lord and say, Spirit of God, lead me in the way and the truth and the life that are in Jesus. And so before and as we go into our time of communion, I'm just going to ask that you would do this. I'm going to ask that you would just kind of settle yourself into your chair this morning. And whatever helps you just kind of release, I'm going to ask you to do that. Maybe it's closing your eyes. And something that I like to do is I like to just open up my hands as a posture of surrender. I'm releasing the things that I'm holding on to. I'm releasing my way and I am receiving God's way. I'm receiving the way of Jesus and receiving being led by the Spirit of God. And so maybe just close your eyes and I just want you to engage the Spirit of God with this prayer. In what way did I sense the deepest connection with God this week? Where was the burning bush? And now invite the Spirit of God into that moment. Maybe it's just deep gratitude. God is at work in me. 
Maybe it's a ministry. It's a gift. It's a calling that God has placed on your life that he's wanting to lead you into. Invite the Spirit of God. Lead me in the way and the truth and the life that are in Jesus. Now on the flip side, where did I feel the deepest sense of disconnection from God? There was a place of anger, fear, and frustration. Sense deep brokenness in a relationship with a loved one or a friend. Spirit of God, come into these deep and broken places of our lives and lead us in the way and the truth and the life that are in Jesus. As we go into our time of communion, I invite you to bring whatever God is speaking to you about, to bring that to the communion table this morning. You know, the word communion, it's, it means fellowship. Bring that to the table, to Jesus' table, and continue to talk with him about it and see what he might have to say about these things. And I encourage you as you leave this morning to take that conversation with you into this week. How might the Spirit of God be leading you in this week into the way and the truth and the life that are found in Jesus' name? Because it is in the way of Jesus as the Spirit leads us into that truth that is in Jesus, that we experience life in His name. That's where it is. So, Spirit of God, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Heal the deep, broken places of our lives. Give us life in the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.